I want to be very clear where we're heading with this study of the Gospel of John. Um, I, I know we've done studies here even before I came, and, and the ladies have done Gospel studies and so on, and, and all of that is, is wonderful. I want to let you know my approach to the Gospel of John as to how we're going to look at it and what we're looking for from it. Okay? You're going to hear me talk about in just a few short moments that the Gospel of John out of all the Gospels, is by far the most theologically written Gospel. We're going to get into that in a minute. Which means there is so much of what Christ had revealed to the church, to John, who was also uh, an Apostle who lived to an older age, unlike the other Apostles. So he saw so much of the church birthed and evolved and the worship and the prayers and the revelation of the understanding of Jesus Christ and the faith that he left to his church. And when you look at the Gospel of John, it is impossible not to see kind of the different form of writing that it is compared to the other ones that if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get the sense of the wonderful narrative of the life of Christ. That does not mean there's absence of theology in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Don't, don't hear me say that. But you see a difference in the Gospel of John as to the language using to talk about Jesus Christ and all the things that He would do in His life. The language used is uniquely different in the Gospel of John. My focus in taking us through John is this. If so much theology had developed through John and is expressed through his gospel, theology tells us two things. It tells us who God is. It grants us the revelation of God in words, not that we can perfectly grasp, but it lends words to the explanation of the revelation of God so we can come to know Him better. And secondly, by virtue of knowing Him, we come to know us because we are of Him. And so when I look at the Gospel of John, and we, we look at it in this series, we're going to be looking to learn all through the Apostle John, but also through the Fathers and their teachings, and what was going on around that time, to catch that glimpse of Christ's revelation to us of Himself, so that we might know Him better, and come to understand who we truly are because of Him better. That's how I'm going to approach the Gospel of John. And so, as we get started in the Gospel of John, and today we will just deal with a bit of chapter 1, but a very important bit of chapter 1. I want to give you a little background so that we understand something about this Gospel. First is the author. I just said it is the Apostle John. We know that. The Apostle John was one of the sons of Zebedee. Uh, the brother of James. He was among the first disciples called by Christ. He was one of the fishermen with Peter, James, John, and so on that were called on that day. Actually, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen that day when Christ revealed Himself to them and He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what did they do? They did that. They dropped everything and they followed Him with all that they were. So they were the earliest of the disciples. He was one of the few disciples that would be invited to witness the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he would see that. He would behold Christ in His true nature, all that He is. And obviously He would become one of the twelve original apostles. He was the only apostle, by the way. John was the only apostle to not be martyred. 
that did not mean that he did not suffer for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle. In fact, under the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian, he, Domitian was the second Roman emperor to persecute Christians. Nero and Domitian. The, the, the Christian persecution under Rome. And so he ordered the apostle John to be sentenced to death by being boiled in oil. And so they heated up the oil to who knows what degree, but before it became flammable, because oil does at a certain degree. But it was enough to kill a person and torture them and so on and so forth. They stick John in it, and here's the interesting thing. We find out from Tertullian, who would write a historical writing called Prescription Against the Heretics. This would be written around 170. Okay? So you're talking about the next generation and a half or second generation beyond the, the apostolic time. He's writing what had been passed down as far as history. And here's what he writes about the boiling in oil of the Apostle John. That when they put John in the oil, rather than writhing in pain, God completely preserved him. And what did John do? He preached the gospel from the oil. And he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. What you had in this instance is very, it would be very familiar to us with uh, uh, might in the Old Testament was preserved from death in the midst of heat and flame. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were put in the fiery furnace. They should have died instantly. But instead, there in there, a light shone, another person with them, preserved them from death. And this is the testimony of the Apostle John. He was put in the oil. He did not suffer which really frustrated Domitian. Okay? And so what Domitian did was, because they could not kill John, he needed to get him out of the way. Because he's preaching the gospel. He's furthering what he's persecuting, right? And so what do they do? They sentence him to banishment, to exile, to the Isle of Patmos. Now, while John would be on the Isle of Patmos, this is where he would receive the blessed revelation by Jesus Christ that was written and now expressed as the book of Revelation and Holy Scripture. That would happen while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Domitian did him a favor. Gave him space and time, and Christ used that time for this incredible revelation uh, given to John. So that's the author. Dating the Gospel of John, it is the latest written Gospel of them all by far. By far. Um, the earliest written Gospel is actually St. Luke. Probably right around or even just before A.D. 60. Okay? Which would have been just 30 years after Christ. Okay? Or <clears throat> 30 some odd years after Christ. St. Matthew would have been written somewhere around or a little after. They, they typically dated between 60 and 70 AD, or AD 60 and 70. And St. Mark, same thing, just before the fall of Jerusalem, which was in AD 70. They mark it so in the, in the AD 60s. But not the Gospel of St. John. The Gospel of St. John, the range where they think that it was written was all the way to the A.D. 90s or into the second century. John would have written this at his very old age. But I want you to think for just a second about that. What had he experienced? What had he seen prior to A.D. 30 for three or four years? He's with Jesus Christ. Pentecost would happen around AD 30, 31, somewhere around there. 
the birth of the church. The gospel begins to spread. We're talking about some 60 to 70 years after Pentecost of the church's development by those apostles and all that they would place in leadership. It's only then that he writes his gospel. Okay? So somewhere in the 90s or early AD 100s is where they date this. Now what does that mean to us and what does, that, what does the church have to say about this? Again, we have to imagine in real life what the Apostle John was experiencing. The revelation of God came at the Incarnation. The Apostle John dwelled with Jesus Christ for three some odd years daily. And we don't have, even John says, we don't have near half the stuff recorded of what he did and what he taught in the Gospels. Jesus taught so much, he heard all of this. Jesus goes through his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, the birth of the church at Pentecost, and then another 60 to 70 years of God revealing, because God did not stop revealing the truth, nor protecting the truth to mankind, as the church would go throughout all of the world. So God is continuing to reveal those truths. And that's why I say... The Gospel of St. John, and that's quite frankly why God, the Gospel of St. John is literally the most theological of all of them. And I, and I grant that not because John was a great theologian. They were all theologians. They were all granted the revelation of Jesus Christ and tried to put words to it. John had another 30 or 40 years to do so. John had another 30 or 40 years to witness God develop His church on the earth. God had, John had another 30 or 40 years to experience the worship of God developing in the churches everywhere they planted them. You follow me? And so when John writes his gospel about the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is writing with that extended revelation of God. And again, when I say the word theology, I want to I remind us very quickly of what theolo- theology is not. It is not simply good ideas that tickle our brains, that tickle our minds, that we're supposed to get oh so smart in our mental faculties, in our mental abilities to be able to think about Christ. I'm not denying thought and intellect. But it's not limited to thought and intellect. That's what Western culture does. It tries to rationalize everything. We must understand perfectly how something is or how something was or how God does this. I'll give you a perfect example, and it's a way that we differ from Rome. And that is the Eucharist. Here's how theology becomes so rational we miss it completely. In the West, there developed the attempt to try to understand how God takes bread and wine makes it body and blood for us. And they came up with a nice little thought. It's called transubstantiation. Okay? Transubstantiation says that Jesus takes bread and wine and molecularly it changes to become truly like our skin, flesh and blood. It was an attempt. Now, Roman Orthodoxy are alike in that they believe that it is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no difference. We are in agreement Here's the difference. We've tried to rationalize the theology and explain that that this is the only way that this can happen. And orthodoxy does not go that far. It simply says God said He took bread 
Jesus Christ took bread, He took wine, He's blessed it and said, this is my body, this is my blood. And so we embrace the fact that we may not ever understand how He does it, but He did it. You see the difference? And and I'm using just Rome as an example. So many different avenues of of Christianity um, in the West tend to view theology as such an intellectual proposition where you have to intellectually understand everything. That's not how I want us to think about theology. I want us to think about theology as God reveals Himself to man. And by the Holy Spirit, man struggles to grasp what He has revealed. And we grow eternally in that knowledge. Maybe never ever totally getting everything about God. I mean, good gracious, it's just God. How incredible He is, right? So when I talk about theology... And I talk about the Gospel of St. John being one of the most theological Gospels. I want us to understand that even in that theology, and we're going to see it in just a minute when we even look at the beginning of the Gospel of John, that even though words are put to the truth, sometimes we'll forever be led into that truth. Does that make sense? You with me in that? Okay, good. And I don't want you to think either that with theology that we can't come to conclusions about anything. I'm not saying that because Christ came. God was revealed through Christ. There are certainties that not only with our intellect, with our whole being, we can come to identify and understand that's been made known to us. Okay. So theology had been taking form in those first 70 some odd years of John's life as a Christian. Okay. Um, He tells the story of who Christ is with further revealed theology that the church had comprehended. And we need to look no further than John chapter 1 and even its first verse. And I handed out just the verses we'll be looking at today and using. In John chapter 1, we don't need to look any further than what's before you to understand theology that both we can know and is unknowable all at the same time. It's one of the things that I want to talk about for just a moment. Let's read something first, actually. Uh, St. John 1, 1 through 5. If I could read that for you. We hear St. John chapter 1, at least a bulk of it, every Mass at the end of Mass. There's a reason for that, by the way. The revelation of God, who He is in Jesus Christ, is extra important and always important. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. I left off. Did not comprehend it, excuse me. Every other gospel either begins with a narrative story of Jesus' life, ministry, birth, whatever, or a genealogy. Do you see the difference in John? Where does John even begin his gospel? Not with a narrative, not with a historical account. But he begins it with one of the most rich theological revelations. This is who Jesus is. See? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And I'm going to tell you that when I read that, and I read, and when I read that every Sunday, and when I just read it to you, 
I know it and I don't know it all at the same time. Who can fathom in the beginning was the word, the Logos, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and He was with God, and He was God. He was in the beginning with God. There are things I get and don't get even in that statement. If it's When it says in verse 4, in Him was life, and life was the light of men. I get the language. I know what light at least means. But the depth of what it means, that in Him was life, and life was our light, blows my mind. And I have to pursue that. And we should pursue things like that. And you know what? The first church in the first millennium when the the, the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed and so on were being developed, they were struggling to grasp at this too. And in fact, you had the, the Apostles' Creed that had a beautiful framework of the Holy Trinity in it as far as what we believe is our faith. But then came some heresies along the way that tried to wrongly define how Jesus Christ was God. How Jesus Christ took on our flesh. That the church had to hold councils for. And in those councils, God would grant wisdom to the church to put down all heresies and to further clarify with words the revelation of who God is and how He saved man. Okay, So the early church wrestled with this. We continue... To wrestle towards all of these truths. So let's take a look at just a second. Let's see what is revealed just in a few verses. And we'll have a little discussion about this before we move on. Let's see what we can learn about our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing in verse 1 it says is, In the beginning was the Word. The Word being Jesus Christ. It says, In the beginning was the Word. What does that tell you about Jesus? It's okay. And it, by the way, it's okay he if you stumble. Or anything else. He was there before anything else was. What else? He's eternal. Good. What else? Thoughts? It's, it says in the beginning, in the beginning of what? Genesis. In the beginning of everything. In the beginning of the world. At, at the creation. Right? Yes. What's that, Ava? He spoke the word in world into He was there and He spoke the world into existence. Hold that thought because we're coming up on the next one. Okay, so these are some good ideas. In, the, in other words, this Word of God, the divine Logos, Jesus Christ, He was before and is beyond and always will be beyond the confines of time. Okay? This is part of who He is. Second statement. And the Word, again, in the beginning He said, so He's given us a framework of thought here. In the beginning, the Word was with God. Now, this tells us something about the Holy Trinity, very important. In the beginning, He was, the Word was with God. What does that tell us about the Trinity? There's two parts. There's what? There's two parts. There's two parts in this, at least in that scene. There are two persons being mentioned. Okay. We all know our Trinitarian formula. Three persons, three divine persons, yet one. And this is being expressed right at the beginning of the gospel. John is hammering this out to make sure everyone knows that the Word of God, Jesus Christ, is one of the persons of the Holy Trinity. Because you can't be with a person if there aren't more than one person. He's making that very clear. Okay? 
And the Word was God. There's the second part of our Trinitarian formula. Three persons yet what? One. Every person in the Holy Trinity is God. And we say, excuse me, we say that, don't we, in the Nicene Creed? Who with the Father, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Complete equality, three persons yet one, all being God. Very good. Now, to what Abel was saying. Verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was made, nothing was made that was made. To Ava's point that she just made, that it is through the divine Logos, the Word of God, that all things came into existence. And that's why, think about this, on top of what we talked about in the homily today, who is it that was baptized to bring about a new creation? the one through whom all things were created in the beginning. And it would be through Jesus Christ, the person, one of the persons of the Godhead. It would be through Jesus Christ that the waters would be sanctified and all would be recreated through the same divine logos. Right? The Word of God. So that's what he's saying there. And I love this statement. And again... How would this be created? Because in Him, the Word of God, was life. And the life was the light of the men. Now, think about what Jesus proclaims about Himself. A lot of times, especially at Requiem Masses, or also throughout Pascha, we recognize Jesus Christ being the resurrection. But He said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the what? There is no life but through Christ. It doesn't say, does it, that He gives life, even though we know He does. That's not what it says. He is life. He is life. And that's the statement that's made. And I want us to move on to the next section. Look at verses 14. Excuse me. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I would put to you that in those verses, or excuse me, in that verse, you see both the fulfillment of the meaning of Christmas and Epiphany. All in one verse, pointing to Jesus Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What's that? Christmas. Christmas. That's the nativity. But then the second part. And we beheld His glory. The glory as as of only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld. What is that? He revealed. And because He revealed, we experienced The world experienced. We still experience. Okay? Now, I want to tell you that in the first millennium, this very verse, and the Word became flesh, this this verse would be the point of a lot of contention on coming to understanding of how did the Word become flesh? 
How is it that God and man were joined in the person of Jesus Christ so that man could ascend to become like God? This would create many heresies that would come up. And what I want to do for just a moment, so that you understand the importance of theology, that is, I'm not talking about classroom sessions. Remember how I define theology? God's revelation to us, and by the Holy Spirit, are growing into that truth. Okay? I want us to take a look at one of the early church heresies that would come up trying to describe how it was that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and how we are saved by that. Okay? Now, this was very early in the early church, and it was a Excuse me, it was a heresy called Nestorianism. I've got it on the board up here. Okay? Nestorianism. It's named after Nestorius, who was a bishop in the church, uh, not only in the church, in Constantinople for a time. Okay? But he was a bishop in the church in the early 5th century. That's the 400s. Alright? It's named after him because he championed this teaching and moved it further and it started to spread. It took root and it started to grow. Now remember what Jesus said. And then remember what also so many of the epistle writers said about the necessity of guarding against false doctrines to the church. Jesus proclaimed you're going to have false teachers. Be wary. The apostles proclaimed it to the churches. Be wary of false teachers. Let's look where Nestorius goes and how everything came to be expressed for us in understanding of our our life and salvation in Christ. So here's what Nestorius said. Nestorius said, in Jesus Christ, there were two persons, two separate persons in Jesus Christ's body. There was the divine person and the human person, both in Him. The divine person had a divine nature, all the virtues that would come from the divine, and also would have a divine will because of that. Okay, This is the God part. But in the second person within Jesus Christ, you have the human person that has a fallen human nature within Him and a human will. Now, As I'm saying this, it ought to dawn on you, A, what's wrong with that? There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that. Because do we not believe that Jesus Christ is both God and man? Doesn't that express it? It does. It absolutely does. But I want to show you the problem. Actually, let me tell you one other thing that stemmed from this. At that time in the mid-400s, they were already using the the term about to describe the Blessed Virgin Mary, Theotokos. You've heard that, we know that. Theotokos means the mother of God. But under Nestorius, he brought to the table, we can't say that anymore, it's not right. Because Mary gave birth to the human person only. The divine would have to be joined mysteriously somehow otherwise. Okay? So Mary gave birth to the human Jesus Christ. And so Nestorianism would say, we can only say this. Christotokos. Christotokos. The the bearer of Christ. 
not the bearer of God. And so he sought to change that language. Okay? Alright. Now, having said that, the movement got so strong that it necessitated the calling for an ecumenical council of all bishops and priests and deacons and laity. Laity would be part of these councils. And they would convene and they would hash out these issues. They would, in other words, they would put Nestorianism to the test of orthodoxy. And what does orthodoxy mean, by the way? Let's remember real quick. Right worship, right thinking, right, right, just right. Right, yeah, right belief, exactly. Right theology. So it would be put to the test in the church council. Now the fiercest, op- fiercest opposition to Nestorian or Nestorius and Nestorianism would come from St. Cyril of Jerusalem, okay? who was also a bishop during that time. And he championed the way at these meetings, the way that the church had always been thinking about our salvation because God became flesh and dwelt among us and united divinity and united divinity to our human nature so that it might be saved. Okay? And I want to share with you the difference in theology so that you can see it and how important that even the slightest tweak to the truth can lead us astray in understanding who God is, what He's done, and who we are. Alright? So here's what St. Cyril of Jerusalem said. He said, In Jesus Christ there is only one person. Unified in that one person is both the divine and human person. You can't separate them. They're one. Okay? Because of that, in Christ is both united within Him, the divine and the human nature. The church uses this term that Christ assumed our human nature within Himself. He took all of, the, all of our frailties. He endured all of our temptations. But He took all of our frailties and the results of the fall, the, the effects that that had on humanity that He created, and He united it within Himself. One person, one nature, one nature, divine, I'm sorry, one person, divine and human nature together as one, inseparable. Divine and human nature and divine and human will join. And here's why this is important. By the way, just to let the cat out of the bag, unless you hadn't guessed yet, Orthodoxy won. (laughs) Orthodoxy won and would proclaim this truth with such incredible verbiage. Beautiful explanations. Okay? And, based, and as well as they would say that what St. Cyril was, had presented is indeed what has been revealed to the church. Therefore, Christotokos is off the table. Mary was the bearer of God because within her was the God who had joined himself to man. Okay? And so that's who she is. Now here's the important part. I think you'll see the danger of just the slightest tweak to the truth. Let me ask you a question with Nestorius. And Nestorianism. In this formula, are these ever joined? No. There is nothing in Nestorianism that joins the divine to the human. And the church fathers will tell us. In fact, let me read to you St. Gregory the Theologian, Patriarch of Constantinople even in the mid-300s. 
And it talks about this assuming of our human nature within Christ. St. Gregory the theologian says this, Jesus is not contained in any place, the timeless, the one who was and is. He was in the beginning and was with God and was God. And he, <clears throat> what He was, He laid aside. And what He was not, He assumed. Not that He became two, but He deigned to be one made out of the two. For both are God, that which is assumed and that which was assumed. Two natures meeting in one, he says. And here's what the church will tell us. If what Nestorius said is true, two persons, divine, human, forever separated, even though they're in the person of Jesus Christ, if they've never been joined, they can never be saved. That which is not joined to Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, can never ascend to the divine. Everything we believe about Jesus Christ is that our entire salvation is wrapped... Who's the beginning and end of our salvation? Jesus Christ. Everything about our salvation has to do with our being joined through Him by the Holy Spirit to the Father. In other words... If it has not been assumed in Jesus Christ, it cannot be saved. If, if our broken humanity has not been tangled with, enmeshed with, His divinity, the divine nature, the divine will, the divine person, we can never be like the divine. And so Nestorianism was condemned as a heresy that would keep people from salvation. <clears throat> To believe such a thing. Does that make sense? But do you see just the slight tweaking? When I first read this to you, you were questioning, I'm wondering what's wrong with this. And that's how Satan works in our lives. And that's how Satan works in truth. He takes truth. He doesn't look to show something extremely opposite. That wouldn't fool anybody. He takes the truth revealed, the theology, theo, God, the theology. He takes the theology and he ever so subtly tweaks it. Let me give you an example. If you have two boats, okay, and they're going at the same pace in the water, in the sea, and one ship gets one little correction of navigation, barely any, where are they a hundred nautical miles into the sea? What happens? Further and further and further. That ship that just slightly changed its navigation point is now so separate from where it was heading in the beginning. Called off course. What's that? It's called off course. Way <laughs> off course. Way off course. This would have been the beginnings of something. And by the way, I have Protestant brothers and sisters. They have not gone full-blown Nestorianism. That's why Protestants are not called heretics. We, we label them her heterodox, different thinking. But all of those heresies, if you look at them in, in Nestorianism, there are those in various Protestants uh, and non-denominational teachings that have had the, tr the truth tweaked. And now I look at when they started and 50 years after their development, how their entire theologies have changed about things. You know? This is why it's so important 
that we understand and safeguard ourselves into the truths handed down by the Orthodox Church. I say this even more specifically by Jesus Christ keeping, who sent his Holy Spirit and he promised that the Holy Spirit would reveal all what? Truth. And guess what? Protected as well. But now let's ask ourselves this question as we close. Because again, learning these things, it's, it's, it, it's nice and it's important. But if we don't learn how it pertains to us, we've missed it. Because everything about salvation, everything that the church teaches is ultimately about this union we have with God. About our salvation, our life. Okay? So what does this have to do with us? Alright, I'll offer you a couple of thoughts. The first Adam, the first of humanity. Tell me a little bit about the story. What happened with the first Adam? He goofed. He goofed. That is a loving way to put that, and I like that. He did. Uh, You know, God told him, and Eve, don't eat of a particular tree. Satan comes into the scene and he tweaks the truth. He says, oh, no, 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 that's not what God meant. You see, you can become like God without God. See, that was the whole point of the deception and is always the point of our deception, that we can be saved without God, that we can become without God, that we can have life without God, you see. That separates us. And so he gave in to that temptation and they ate. And they fell. And what happened when they fell? This. For the first time ever, separation of the divine from the human. See, man existed in union of fellowship with God in the very beginning and had everything that he needed to become like God. But now because not only did he fall to them to temptation and sin... But when God called after him, he hid. He hid. And man was separated from God. Now, let's reverse it because this is exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. Jesus Christ, if that's the first Adam, what do we know Jesus Christ is called? The second Adam. The second Adam. All you need to think about to get this is the exact reversal of of the fall of man through Adam and Eve by the temptation of Satan. So in Adam, separation from God occurred. That therefore, in Christ, what's the opposite? Reconciliation. Yeah. Reconciliation of union again. If Jesus Christ... Let's look at this now. The Orthodox understanding of God became flesh and dwelt among us and assumed our humanity within himself. Jesus within Jesus Christ is what? Both divine person, human person. Because of that, both divine and human nature are within Christ. Because of that, divine and human will are all existing within Jesus Christ. He was the first among us, we're told. Therefore, Tell me what's true about us. Who are we? Everything you see here in Jesus Christ is except as expressed through orthodoxy is true about you. 
from your baptism which washed away your sin, threw back the enemy's hold, overcame the fall, and by being filled with the Holy Spirit in you. If you're filled with God, if you're temples of the Holy Spirit, who dwells in you all the time? The divine. The divine and human person here. The divine and human nature all here. The divine and human will all in us. Why? So that the human person, the human nature, the human will could ascend again. Could throw off all of the results of the fall and by the grace of God and by our being made of the second Adam. So that we might again, just like Adam, we are given everything Adam had. Absolute union with God within ourselves. And I want to ask you, I don't want you to answer this question verbally. I want you to answer it with your life. If this is true, if the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, if Christ is the second Adam, and because of that first among us, we're like Him by our rebirth through Him by the Holy Spirit. If this is all true, how would it change the way you live your life? If you would live, if I would live, as though the divine is with me always, united to me, not some spherically around me, not some ghost out there, but if the divine and the human has been wrapped up in me, and everywhere I go that's a reality, how to change the way that I might live? How to change the way that you live? Because see, that's what it's all about. When I say change, I'm talking ascension from the human to the divine. I'm talking theosis. This is why that same apostle, and I'll close with this. That same apostle John, in his first epistle that he would write, in 1 John 3, listen to these words. They can only be understood if this is true. They can only be understood if what we said about this formula is true. The Apostle John wrote, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Now listen to this verse. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for God's seed remains in him. Whoever is born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him. By the way, the same apostle would say, if you sin, we have a mediator. But what is he saying? This truth is who we are. And because of this truth, if Jesus says this, If we will remain in Him, leaving these things combined, not dividing them by our choices and actions. If we will remain in Him and if He is in us, what happens to us? We bear the fruit of the vine. We ascend. And what's expressed through us over the course of our lives is more the divine than the human. That's what John is saying to get that. My prayer for you and you pray for me is that this becomes such a truth that we grow into for the rest of our lives, 
that God gives us a glimpse of just what He has done uniting us to Himself within ourselves. That we see the salvation of God through our own lives. Let's stand.